a big fan of the Rolling Stones when I was a kid. And, um, you know, and all the other rock music that came along in that era. Um, and I listened to it. Um, my favorite band, of course, was the Rolling Stones. And I uh, had it in my mind since I was about 16 that that's what I wanted to do for a living. But I listened to everybody, um, every, uh, you know, rock album, every rock band that was happening i was just starting to learn about blues howling wolf bo diddley people like that um however when i got out, out of school um i started figuring out i have to do something here to uh make a living and i have to um you know i have to learn learn an instrument i, I dabbled on the guitar i wasn't much of a singer um i played in several bands and i was a, a fairly good front man i was um I, I was decent at performing decent enough that i got encouraged to do it for a living, uh, but I, I couldn't play. And I played a little guitar and I had people around me saying, you play that guitar a little better than you think you do. Just because you don't play like Jeff Beck or <laughs> you don't play like Jimi Hendrix doesn't mean you still can't play and make a living. So uh, that's when I started diving into, into the world of the blues. Um, really, um, and it was more like a learning period as much as entertainment, really. Uh, John Lee Hooker was a big factor, as you can see. Um, he because he had that one chord thing going and really could make it make it move without it being complicated and everybody else too just like anybody else that's just like Albert Bishop did and John Hammond and uh, the Rolling Stones and everybody before me um, you know I checked out Robert Johnson uh, Elmore James Jimmy Reed uh, Muddy Waters and listened to them over and over and over to try to get a grip on this um, uh, you know kind of blues funk guitar which in 1970, 71, and 72, that was very much in vogue. And I was saying, if you work at this thing, you could be as good as those people. People were making noise in the world and underground music like um, uh, Johnny Winter, John Hammond, Elvin Bishop, Bonnie Raitt, Ry Cooter. And they all had that slide guitar thing going but with a blues bass behind it. And I said, there might be enough room for one more cat to sneak in there in the 11th hour. And... Uh, who knows, you might be able to build a band together and be the next Savoy Brown or be the next Can Heat, you know, and that, that was okay by me. So that was pretty much, the, that was pretty much up to date what I was uh, doing to, um, how to how to perfect my trade. Well, not perfect it, but hone it, whatever. So and that's led me to talking to you. Where are you from, man? I'm from London. Yeah. But I'm in Italy at the moment. You know, I, I split from the United States in about 1971, early 71, and I hid out in your country for about six weeks, stay, <clears throat> excuse me, staying with some relatives. And I had a couple of John Lee Hooker records, the John Hammond record, and a couple of Robert Johnson records. And I just stayed in their house, and they let me stay there. I just practiced and practiced and practiced and practiced. And when I got back from England, um, I, I had I'd taken a big leap, a quantum leap, on the guitar and that, that's what I really had to do. And uh, it was actually in your country when I first discovered Elmore James, um, oh. I went, I was going to like these flea markets and places picking up records and I heard his name, um, but didn't really know that much about him and, and bought a record by him and started um, really, really hunkering down on the slide guitar. So what part of London are you from? I'm from Fulham. From Fulham, whereabouts did you stay um, practicing your guitar? What area is it? Do? Fulham is like near, southwest. It's kind of near Chelsea. Is it near Collier's Wood? Uh, I'm not sure. I think it's relatively near Collier's Wood. 
that southwest. Maybe it's That's not. That's where my father was from. All oh, right. So we got a little bit of a connection. For sure. So, so your, so your dad was English. Yeah, Collier's Wood is yes. in that is in Southwest London. It is right. Yeah. So your dad, so your dad was was English, and and he. I, was, I still have relatives there scattered around the world. So. You dabbled in the guitar, right? And then. People started saying, you know, maybe you can make a living off this. Like, mm. and it sounds like you've started really knuckling down and practicing quite a lot. You know, would would you say you got your ten thousand hours in or whatever before before making making your first record? Well, I had to do a crash course in the guitar. Uh, everybody in the neighborhood were years ahead of me. They started playing seriously when they were 16, 15, 16. And uh, I didn't. Um, I was very hung up on being a front person like uh, you know, like Eric Burden or Mick Jagger. But thing is, I couldn't sing like Eric Burden and I couldn't write songs like Mick Jagger can. So I said, I got to learn an instrument. I got to... Uh, get something behind this. And I went solo for, for a couple of years there, just uh, bumming around, playing, you know, coffee houses, even played on the streets for about three months in San Francisco. And uh, later got a couple of gigs playing alone with some interesting people, Sonny Terry, Brandon McGee, uh, uh, Hound Dog Taylor, Robert Lockwood. And um, they all encouraged me to get in the band, to get an electric guitar. Um, especially Hound Dog and his guys were saying, you, Robert Lockwood said, you get an electric guitar and a bass player and a drummer and just take it. And you'll, you'll, that's where it's going to take you where you're going to, where you want to be. And, and before you made your first record, um, I guess, you know, when, when you, when you got signed and, and, and cut your first album, that, that must've been, you know, totally new to you being in a recording studio or, or had you had previous experience there? Excuse me, say that again, Craig. So, so, so when when you cut your first album, had had you ever been in a recording studio before? Before you cut, you know, your kind of like yes. Well, you understand, I've been in the studio. We cut that record, uh, you know, two or three times. We did it with different various people, and nothing came of it. Um, and there was some people in in New England who were interested in that, and in putting out it, but I had no record label. There was no record label interested in us. Uh, there, nobody was interested in us. It was funny because we had all, well, I didn't think it was too funny, but I said, here I have critical acclaim from the blessed blues people in the world. John Lee Hooker we played with. I played with Muddy Waters was knocked out by what I did. Um, so was Hound Dog Taylor and Robert Lockwood, and Sonny Terry. I said, now all those cats are behind me. And um, we had you know, audience, and as far as appreciating what I did or appreciating what our band did, we had that going too. And I said, I don't understand this. <laughs> here, here we got people, you know, standing in the audience with tape recorders every day at night listening to us, right? And we also have all these top of the line blues people um, behind me or behind us, <clears throat> but I couldn't get a deal. I couldn't, and it was very frustrating. I, we couldn't. Uh, so finally we said, oh, we'll record. And this guy wanted to record us. And Rounder said, well, well, they had heard me play. And they said, well, maybe we'll distribute your record on a different label. And I, this is the third or fourth time I've been in the studio recording these same songs. And I was trying to explain to everybody. And people were just, that next guy, people were saying, well, you know, you, you want to do this, but you want to, you know, change your repertoire. You want to do this. I said, you're crazy. Bourbon scotch and beer is a hit. We play it in the clubs night after night after night after night, and people come and pack the clubs to hear us play that song. We have to record that, 
um, like uh, um, looking for a love broke the Jay Giles band. Understood? Time was on my side, broke the Rolling Stones. I said, you need that one song, whether you wrote it or not. And, uh, you know, people aren't concerned about that. They just like the song. <clears throat> Plus, we had an interesting intro to it from House Friend Blues uh, by John Lee Hooker. And I, so Rounder then took pity on me and said, well, this poor guy is just beating his head against, out of, oh, out of mercy or out of, uh, you know, out of just pure sympathy for me. And he said, all right, we'll put out your record. And even that took a long time. Once we recorded it, it sat on a shelf for about a year and a half. So you did not want to hang around with me between about 1974, 1977. I was not a happy person, uh, especially when I see other artists who were, getting there, if you know what I mean, that were my age or older and, uh, you know, getting the breaks. And, uh, and I said, look, man, all we need is a record. Are you kidding? That's what we need. So when it finally came out, um, I got a lot of attention and I've got a lot of good reviews and major record labels. Are, people wanted to come sign us. And that really frustrated me to no end. I was like, well, where were you three years ago? I mean, you know, I had to go through all this stuff. And now all these record labels uh, are holy capital records, Warner, uh, Atlantic, Electra Asylum, people coming at me. And I'm like, no, I already have a record out and it's already in the charts. Why? <laughs> you know, you're kind of coming in after the fact. So I was a very, very bitter guy at the time. Um, it took, took a while for that to, for that to sit with me. Um, so it wasn't like this one of the relief as well, though, you know, to like finally. It was kind of a relief because I, I thought the material was good on the record. The performances I thought were fair and the production was terrible. Um, <laughs> some of the some of the people recording had no idea what we were doing. Um, we had um, you know, I had good material on it and we played OK. But you understand, we didn't play those songs so long that we were almost getting bored with them and tired with them. And when we'd go in the studio and say, well, if you're tired, do another song. I said, I can't. Bourbon, Scotch, and Beer is the tune. <laughs> that's, that's what people want to hear. And it, it, I never knew it would get on the radio. And it's still on the radio today. So we yeah. must have been doing something right. Yeah, for sure. And, and, and so from there, I guess what kind of, you know, started cementing you as, as a, you know, a bigger name, um, from that point was was that support slot that you got with a band who you you know cited as one of your favorites but kind of bef before you became um a, a pro musician um playing with the stones in in 81 so mm. was was that like was was that awesome were, were, were you were you that was another thing that i had to i had to again that the rolling stones did not come knocking on my door okay <laughs> neither did bill graham or any of the promoters i put that thing in motion with the booking agent we had at that time and i wouldn't leave him alone and say you're gonna um get us a gig with the rolling stones at least it's one this one is all i if you can get if i could just do that and we already had three albums at the time and i said moving on over is doing even better than bourbon scotch and beer was doing all right I said, if you can get us one gig, and I kept bugging him. Uh, he kept bugging Bill Graham. <laughs> Bill Graham went to the Stones and finally got a gig with them. I tell you the truth, it went well. And I said, if I can walk away from this thing right now, I said, I've put 10 years into this thing. And it's finally I got to play with, with the people I want to. Um, but it was such an uphill grind all the time. Um, 
that it would you pretty much had worn me out and uh, then they kept asking us back for more gigs more gigs bill grant once said it worked come play tomorrow it was like a rookie in a lineup you do good one day they put you in the next day they didn't sign us for a whole tour um just to see how we could do it wasn't that kind of secured in advance so it was more you know you really hustled to get that first gig and then bit by bit they kept on asking you back yeah exactly and during that time then the major record labels came around again, <laughs> again, because they knew my contract was up with Rounder. And I said, well, George, you wanted, I was really serious thinking on just stopping doing this altogether because this is as far as I ever dreamed or wanted to take it. Yeah. Yeah. I said, you know, you got two records. One of them's gold. You know, you did it. You played with the stones, you know, that, that was it for me. That was the dream come true. Uh, the dream took 16 years to put it in place. But it finally happened. And then when the major labels came around again, I said, well, George, a lot of people get the, get the brass ring once in their life and then they pass on. Not too many people get the brass ring twice, which, which is happening to me. So I said, well, then go for it. Okay. And that's when we signed with uh, EMI America, EMI label, which is uh, originally a, a British uh, label, I believe at the time. Um, they were connected to Capitol Records, and it was a big deal at the time. And um, you know, I went, I went for it. And yeah, and then 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 you had a string of you know huge albums there, um, starting with Add to the Bone, right? We did okay. We did okay. We, we put out some records with them. Um, you know, we never made the cover of Rolling Stone or anything or places like that. But we made some noise. We got got a few records, a couple more gold records. Shows in some big places, Madison Square Garden, places like that. So, um, yeah, every time I'd turn around and say, well, that's it. It's, you know, time for me to hang this thing up. And something else would come along, you know, like another song or another opportunity or something like that. Um, so I kind of, I won't say begrudgingly, but I said, you know, let me tell you something, Grid. Show business is not for everybody, Okay. It's, it's always wonderful when you're watching the Ed Sullivan show and you're watching the Beatles on TV and saying how wonderful it is. And I want to do that, but it's a lot more to, to it than that. Um, what was the hardest thing was convincing uh, people that uh, the material I had was correct. Uh, once that happened, um, the, the, the bigger, bigger labels came around and uh, said, well, we don't know who thought up this idea to do these songs, but they're on the radio. Okay, and the albums are in, you know, Billboard and all these different charts, different ones. So there's there's something going on here. And um, I said, okay, well, I'm going to do now from now on. It's just it's really exceptional. I'm not going to listen to anybody else's advice about picking the material that's right for me. Like an actor picking the right script for a movie, saying, I, I know what works for us. I know what what we can do and what we can't do. Uh, so we kind of we kind of stuck to that. Besides. I said, Bourbon Scotch, that's all I know, I know, all I know how to play, Crid. <laughs> you know, I learned from John Lee Hooker, people said, well, you got to move on to something. I said, but I can't do anything else. This is what I do. So our blues material wasn't um, standard, but it was unique. Um, so we had, a, not a blues act, but kind of a unique act. I kind of looked at, I kind of looked at Tom Waits in his early part of his career and said, Tom's got an act and look how far he's going with that voice of his, but he's unique. He's a character. He, has a, you know what I'm saying? Other than just yeah. the usual, you know, 
great whatever, but he, he was great in his own pocket. He created uh, the Tom Waits world. And I, so I really looked at that and said, well, that's, that's what you got to do, George. Um, say, well, it's, what's right for other blues bands doesn't work for us. Yeah. And, and well, I mean, you've definitely succeeded in doing that. And so, but you've played, um, you know, if, if the sort of internet facts are, are correct, you've played over 8,000 gigs. Is that true? Ah, who's, who's counting? I don't know. You, <laughs> you Somebody tell me. Must be, but I mean, that is uh, like an absolutely, I don't know, that seems like an unbelievable, that's like double the amount of gigs, for example, like Elton John's played, who's probably one of the most prolific live live artists out there you must are you have you played more gigs probably than anyone in the rock and roll business maybe no that's not true at all uh, we, we you got to understand something since our record came out that was 1977 77 87 97 2007 that's 43 years right and not to mention all the gigs we did before that so in 43 years we've done that so it comes to maybe i don't know what's the math of 100 maybe 150 dates a year, if you look at it that way. It's not like I did 8,000 in the last two years, Chris. <laughs> we did well, this. That, that would be ridiculous. That would be. Yeah, exactly. That's right. So that's, I've not done any more or any less than any other band starting out. And there's many other ones, um, Elvin Bishop or, or, or uh, uh, Taj Mahal and people like that who have done just as many or more shows than we have. So, it looks like that at first glance, that it's pretty remarkable and saying, well, well let's go back a little bit. But it is still at 150 shows a year, you know, and, and it's actually, it's more than 150 shows a year for 50 years. So it's like, that is a, that is a hectic schedule because a lot of people, you know, who do like 100 plus gigs a year, they'll take, they'll take a bit off. So, you know, when I'm talking to you, part of you sounds quite kind of, um against the kind of showbiz aspect of of doing this and 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 against you know the the it certainly sounds like you've hustled a lot to get where you are but at the same time you must love playing playing gigs right a lot more now <laughs> now i do yes <laughs> why, why why do you prefer them now well you know there's other issues too when you when we were starting out there was um um you know the 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 the, the, the Tech, technology has really caught up with rock. The PA systems are better. The rooms are better. Uh, the hotels welcome you to the, to the hotels. There, there are buses with air conditioning. Um, we weren't into that 43 years ago. Nobody was um, when it accelerated to that level. Um, so the venues that all back then all went out of business, they weren't the greatest venues in the world. Now the ones that are there now are um, top of the line places. So in that sense, things have picked up more. Plus I have much better equipment um, than I had then. I had one guitar, <clears throat> excuse me, which got stolen a couple of times. You know, I had to deal with that. You know, amplifiers blowing up, that, the, whole, the whole thing. We didn't have a crew. We didn't have anything, see? So it was, it was very, very hard. I mean, first time I came to England to play in 1978, people thought we were a punk rock band and we were playing up, up, up in the upper part of England and young kids were coming in, they were spitting on me. <laughs> and I couldn't understand this. And then the, the, the British press said, no, that's a compliment. That's what, the, that's what they do for the punk rock bands. I said, do you mean to tell me 
that I've been studying since for the last 10 years, the works of Elmore James and Robert Johnson and you know, John Lee Hooker and, and got it down to this. And, and this is what I get. I said, did, did they spit on B.B. King? <laughs> Do they spit on Muddy Waters? And they thought they had the whole. So <clears throat> even when we got rolling, it, it, <clears throat> so sorry, it was, um, it was difficult at times because people really didn't know which way to take us. You know, they thought uh, very much that we were a punk rock band. I said, well, if I wanted to be a punk rock band, I, 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 I wouldn't have gone about it like this. So that really discouraged me. It's not, it's not a lot of fun when you're standing there playing and, you know, there, there's, there's mucus hanging all over your hands and your guitar and, you know, and people kept doing it all night and they were saying, no, I said, that's a compliment. <laughs> so wait a minute, I don't get it. You know, um, and it was like that in some other places too. And this was when our first record was out. I said, I've worked all this time to get this record out and people are spinning on me. So I was caught in pretty much of a crossfire at the time. So yeah, yeah it was, it was, it was pretty tough going for a while there. Yeah, it sounds like it. Well, I mean, certainly now you're, you're able to enjoy those, those years of, of grafting. So I, I, my, my final question for you is looking back at, at all the records that you've made um, and all the songs on them, you know, are, are there a couple of like deep cuts or a couple of lesser known tracks that you're really proud of and, and, and sort of, you know, as well as that, what is, what is the, the work in the studio that you're, you're the most proud of? Well, I can't say I'm unproud of it, but um, we, um, maybe the last one, the, the solo one I did, Party of One, that's, that's the album that should have been my first album, and then move on to the electric thing, like, like Dylan and Springsteen did, and various others who started out playing alone before they could afford a band. Well, like and live. What's that? Like you did live, you know, how you, you, you actually did kind of start out like those guys in the sense that you played your gigs like that. You just never got it on record until then. Yeah, and I, and I had taken it about as far as I could. I could barely struggle through 10 or 12 songs playing alone. I don't, uh, at that time anyway, and I didn't, you know, write, I couldn't, playing solo, I couldn't write like Joni Mitchell or Bob Dylan. Nobody can. Okay, that's, you know, that's just, so I said, well, what I do is a kind of a boogie blues funk on the guitar, and I, I stopped doing it when I, I just naturally moved on to the electric guitar. But the last one, the party one is probably, at the time I did it, it was pretty much of a struggle career pretty, to do that. My hands just weren't accustomed to it. I said, well, why didn't we do this 40 years ago? <laughs> why, why are we doing it now? And, and Rounder said, because you haven't done it yet. You haven't, you haven't done this yet. And there's a demand for it. I said, all right, I'll do my best. So that's, um, if there was a, you know, what do you call it, jewel in your crown, something like that, or a big notch on the pistol holder or whatever, uh, that? that would be the one. 